0: to season two of the Public Problems podcast. In this first episode of the new season, I have a conversation with some students who are working on their masters in public service and administration. And we talk about the prevalence of sexual assault throughout society, but particularly on college campuses. I think in the wake of the Me Too movement, this conversation provides a nice backdrop to the evidence um, in this case. But before we begin this episode, Uh, Let me give you an update on a few things Public Problems related. First, we had the Public Problems 101 course in January, Public Problems 101, a January review of the evidence. It wrapped up on Wednesday, January 31st. After five weeks, we had six live sessions that we did with a number of guests, all of which also appeared in Season 1 of the Public Problems podcast. It was a lot of fun to engage with you in this medium, so I think it's something that we're going to continue to explore. We're hoping to do some live conversations to support season two of the podcast and then publish those along with the uh, episodes. I'm also co-hosting a live series with Nathan Fabero for the Public Management Research Association's Discussions on Management and Governance. Um, I hope you'll join us for those live conversations. We are discussing with a number of scholars who have work forthcoming in the first issue of Perspectives on Public Management and Governance. And we'll also be publishing those conversations here in podcast form, so keep an eye out for those. All right, with that in mind, here's my conversation with these students on sexual assault. Welcome to another episode of Public Problems. Um, Today we're going to be talking about sexual assault on college campuses. I have a group here from the Bush School of Government and Public Service. It's a group of students working on their master's in public service and administration. Um, They had, uh, I guess I can't make the same awkward joke again, so they took my class this past fall in the fall of 2017, um, and I gave them an opportunity to research any public issue that they wanted and they chose sexual assault on college campuses. So they're going to tell you about the research that they did over the second half of that fall semester. Um, What I'd like to do is start by letting the students introduce themselves and then we're going to chat about why they picked this topic and then give you uh, kind of a brief introduction to the issue itself. So with that, if you would please introduce yourselves.
1: Yes, I am uh, Seth Smillerman, I'm a public policy analysis track here.
2: I'm Shrabia Podiao, uh, and I'm a nonprofit uh, management track over here. I am Mariam Chikladza, I'm also a public policy analysis track. Uh
3: My name's Georgia Osborne, I'm studying public management.
4: Uh, my name is Kyung Chur, or KC Kim, and I'm on public management track, and I'm from South Korea.
0: Very nice. So, um, as I mentioned, I let you pick the topic, so what motivated you? Um, to want to focus part of your semester on this particular topic?
3: Whenever we first met as a group we decided we wanted to do something that was important and something that we all found important so we had multiple discussions and kind of came around to the topic that's kind of been in the news it feels like every day and that is sexual assault. Uh, On a more general scale in the United States right now we have multiple allegations made every day against those in uh, higher authority positions in politics and in entertainment, uh, particularly. And many victims and survivors are coming forward reporting uh, allegations of sexual assault and sexual harassment in the workplace. Uh, So this is a huge issue on the national scale. Um, Just today, the news broke that Time Magazine was recognizing their 2017 Person of the Year as the silence breakers, which are those who have come forward um, to share their stories and encourage others to come forward. sometimes in an informal platform like the hashtag MeToo campaign, um, other times going to the authorities. So this is definitely a big issue in the United States. Um, on college campuses in particular, a 2016 study found that one in five female undergraduates experienced sexual assault while on campus. So that's why they're actually studying to get a degree to better their future, better their careers, they are being sexually assaulted. And um, another statistic that's just as important is 7% of male undergraduate students are experiencing sexual assault. And of these sexual assaults that are actually happening uh, to our students, only 12.5% of the victims are going to actually report the sexual assaults.
0: So it's pretty prevalent then, one in five women, 7% of men. And then you highlight another issue there which is uh, whether or not it's reported. And so I assume this is something we'll get into a bit later, but it's also hard to get good data and address this um, out in the open because of some of the stigma still related, even in 2017, of people coming forward um, uh, with instances of sexual assault. And we see, we watched it play out recently where a number of women come forward to bring attention to a sexual harassment or sexual assault case and then they're completely dismissed. Um, We saw it play out in the election cycle, right, on both sides in the sense that the current President Trump brought out um, uh, women before a debate who had accused the former President Bill Clinton um, of sexual impropriety and sexual harassment and sexual assault. And then throughout the election cycle, a a number of... um, Women come forward to accuse the current president of sexual assault as well, along with, of course, the recorded tapes with Billy Bush and other issues. So there's still stigma associated around this because even large groups of women, when they come forward to highlight that a powerful figure has uh, assaulted them sexually, there are still not consequences um, for those men often. And so we still have this underreporting Um problem. So I think you lay out the, the kind of issue nicely, but before we move on to the history, um, so one in five on college campuses, are there any other numbers that people should have in their mind as we get started with this discussion?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think another thing that uh, we kind of already touched on but really speaks to the issue of of underreporting, is that the, there was a recent study from the American Association of University Women um, that... Eighty-nine percent of colleges didn't report a single case of sexual assault on their campuses, um, and I think it was 2016. Um, obviously, there's some issue reporting. <laughs> yeah There's some institutional issue. Um, there are there are definitely perverse incentives for a university to try to limit this problem and, and the perception of this problem on their campuses. So I think that's that's probably one of the key issues.
0: So um, you. Saying that highlighted something that I'm not sure everyone will know. So why is it that universities are in charge of reporting these? It seems to me like this is a criminal matter that would traditionally be taken over by the state district attorney or something or local district uh, attorney. Why is it that why are universities in the business of, of, of this process anyways? Like, why is that?
3: That would have a lot to do with Title IX, okay. uh, which was passed uh, in the 1970s um, to include the uh, discrimination on the basis of sex in education. Um, that's still an issue 37 years later, uh, which is a very concerning problem for our uh, nation right now. But Uh, Title IX prohibits students from being discriminated against on the basis of sex. And it wasn't until 1980 where that actually included sexual harassment, rape, and sexual assault. So because Title IX applies to universities and um, a violation of Title IX is a university issue, universities launch their own investigations. They have their own grievance procedures. Those grievance procedures were not um, established until 1980 along with Addressing sexual harassment, rape, and sexual assault as a form of discrimination, and um, that was a a a definite turn in this issue where we we made it more about um, the actual problems that are affecting our students and and the issues that are keeping our students from making their education a priority. Um, As many know, victims and survivors of sexual assault are completely affected for the rest of their life, and uh, trying to understand the effects of it while they're trying to go through such a major life change makes it that much more difficult.
0: So you started talking about some of the um, historical context of this. So let's go there. I mean, you mentioned Title IX. Is this sort of where your history begins when you talk about sexual assault on campuses or kind of get, walk me through, at least from Title IX, but earlier, if that's where you would like to start, to kind of current day, to kind of catch us up on uh, maybe the legislative background or how this has kind of evolved over time as a a particularly a campus issue?
3: Well, um, the first really large academic study of sexual assault began in 1957, uh, which is when they studied male aggression. And that was the first time that we really looked into what the motivations were behind sexual assault and behind sexual violence. Um, And that kind of kick-started a whole trend of academic studies, which turned more into a feminist trend where we were studying the effects on women as victims, and recently, um, in the past two decades, it's become an issue that it's not just women who are victims, it's men as well, Mm -hmm. and we have all types of minority groups that are being affected by sexual assault, and um, these academic studies really launched the political change that um, sexual assault on college campuses has revolved around. like I said before, it wasn't until the 80s that sexual harassment, sexual assault, and rape were included in Title IX, and that was because of the Alexander versus Yale court case when a number of female Yale uh, law students came forward and uh, sued the university for um, not providing them the resources they needed um, and for the discrimination uh, on the basis of sex because of sexual assault. Uh, they were uh, unable to get the education that they had uh, invested in, Mm -hmm. the the time, the energy, the money, the resources that they put into this education like many of us are doing now. We we put effort into this and to be discriminated against because of someone else's actions that are um, harming you or harming others in the classroom setting really prevents one from actually taking advantage of that education. So that became a huge court case that really decided the fate of sexual assault and made it a campus issue made it an issue for administrators for professors for board members for anyone involved in higher education um, and so with an establishment of sexual assault as a campus issue and then the um, requirement of grievance procedures of complaints um, it really kick a new wave of studies which is when we started studying um, not just what the motivations were for sexual assault, but who were the people who were actually um, who mm-hmm. were actually targeting other students and why were they targeting other students? Was it professors? Was it other students? Was it people off campus? Um, was it faculty? Was it staff? Was it third party individuals? It, it launched a whole new wave of uh, academic research, which really kind of came back to the surface um, during the Obama administration. Uh, President Obama and his administration uh, implemented lots of policies and kind of changed the climate for the nation um, by encouraging reporting. Um, They uh, developed the White House Council on Women and Girls, which provided for the White House Task Force to protect students from sexual assault. And this was the first time that a presidential administration really addressed college students as a main priority for the nation, um, looking at them as um, the future, of the future leaders of America um, and saying, there's something going on here and we have to fix it. Um, and so they released a study, um, the 2016 Campus Climate Survey um, Validation Study, which will be brought up in this conversation multiple times. A lot of our statistics come from that. And this is the largest uh, source of data we have on sexual assault because of a lot of the limitations surrounding such a sensitive issue. Um, and right now we're kind of in a in a standstill with uh, Title IX. Uh, the new administration under President Trump has decided to replace the guidance that was provided by the Obama administration. So we don't know where it's moving. We don't know where it's going. We're just waiting to see if, if these changes are going to improve the life of um, college students, or if they're going to make it even more difficult for students to report an issue or to come forward about their uh, allegations.
0: So, what did we learn from the study then? If it's kind of that's a really nice recap of sort of the historical precedent of this and the uh, academic issues and the legislative issues around it, um, we do have this recent study in 2016 that gives us some better data. So where, where are we now? What is the scope of this, uh, given that we have a, a little bit better data uh, from this recent study?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the most important things that um, Gandhi brought up was, um, this issue is especially important on college campuses because people are taking an opportunity to invest in their future. And um, sexual assault has documented um, effects on the quality of the future of a person. So if this is happening, when you're paying to invest in yourself and get a college education, it's especially an important time and, and people would say that you're like especially vulnerable mm-hmm. during during this particular time of your life. So,
0: and you're often away from your safety net, you're, right? uh, you're away from your family, you're away from your home network and you're in a new place without the same type of safety network.
1: Right. So before we get into that, and that's a mm-hmm. whole nother thing, um, just a couple of the educational issues that surround this. Um, people that um, have been sexually assaulted during their time on campus, um, about ten percent of them have dropped classes that they were in, um, which you know has the implications of putting you behind on graduation. Ten um, percent have thought about moving, so either like moving to avoid a social situation. Um, and I think the most shocking one is that 20% of people, just over 20% of people, have considered completely dropping out of school or transferring schools. Uh, these are huge educational decisions that have affected the yeah, no continuity yep. of, of what you're learning. So, um, that's, that's the big issue. That's why people are most vulnerable during this time because you are a student and you're investing in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, something else that you kind of hit on was that um, this is a especially vulnerable types in, in people's social lives. Um, and that's actually reflected through something called the red zone. So um, the red zone is the um, freshman and sophomore years of a person's college career and you're much more likely to be sexually assaulted during that time um, because you're out taking, I guess, more social risks. So you're out um, trying to find people that you, um, you know, want to spend your time around, trying to find that friend group that you really fit in with um that includes you know parties and alcohol use and we'll get to all of that later on but um that all those things put you at a much greater risk um going forward to be assaulted during your first years of college.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean I mean it's probably clear to you all as recent people in undergraduate how these situations um can happen. I mean I it wasn't that long ago since I was an undergraduate and I spent a lot of time in uh bars and, and consuming alcohol and you as you reflect back on it you you can sort of see how uh, situations around you were were not so good right and then how even the not so good ones even in public that were like uncomfortable could have clearly escalated into um, some really rough situations later on in that evening and so I mean to your point you can you know the the whole image we how I think as Americans of like the college party lifestyle um, feeds into this. I mean, it has to, it has to, right? I mean, I'm sure we'll talk to about the role that alcohol and drug use plays in this. Um, but it's not surprising then as underclassmen and women are getting used to their new environment, uh, that they would be at a at a higher risk uh, for sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So what, um, what else? Are there other Useful numbers about the current state of affairs that would be useful for the listeners. Um,
1: a couple other things that, that we found. The literature suggests that uh, women who have been previously sexually assaulted are more likely to be sexually assaulted again, um, which I think is just absolutely unacceptable. Um, a, a couple other like vulnerable groups. So um, any, any part of the LGBT community, um, mm-hmm. all the prevalences, whether you're a man or a woman, um, any type of um, like any type of lifestyle, um, LGBT lifestyle, um, puts you at a higher risk of this type of thing. Um, I think it was like four times as likely uh, for bisexual women who are the most likely to be sexually assaulted during college. So um, there are portions of college campuses that are more affected mm-hmm. than these than the the total college campus itself, and um, historically these portions of the college campuses of the ones that have been marginalized, so I don't think that's too much of a surprise. Um, so it just bears to say that um, some groups are being more disadvantaged than others by this. Um, and we discuss this as a problem of women, we keep talking about women. Um, it, the, the, It's just a fact that men are much more likely to sexually assault women than men are to assault men or for women to assault men. This is a problem that disproportionately bears its burden on women.
0: I imagine um, that the percentage of claims that are assault from men on women compared to other is overwhelmingly the largest category. I mean, is that correct? Absolutely. Um, OK, so um, this is a, is, a, is a big issue. Um, and it affects the most vulnerable in these situations the most. Um, sort of tragically, that's one of the common themes of these reports, is that it it isn't spread uh, equally across the country or across the world. It's in general directed at um, vulnerable groups, which we do a particularly not so great job of protecting always. Um, So what... um, What are the causes? What leads someone? What has this new wave of research found as to why uh, sexual assault on campus is so prevalent?
2: Well, well, as my colleagues have already mentioned, the risks of victimization are higher among women rather than men, and especially if those women are on college campus. Uh, and of course, all the numbers which, uh, were, which were pointed out by my colleagues uh, need to be, co- to be put within the context of uh, college campus. And uh, uh, that will explain, it will help to explain why college campus women are more vulnerable and the most vulnerable for sexual assault. And there are uh, studies that uh, have examined several factors that contribute to the problem, um, and uh, they are just general attitudes and beha- behaviors, uh, general perceptions about women and uh, her sexuality, um, also um, one-meal peer groups, uh, which is integral part of uh, American college campus life, uh, Greek life, um, and uh, also uh, alcohol, uh, alcohol consumption. Um, all those fact- factors in combination or um, any of them uh, separately uh, contributes to the problem uh, largely and let's explore uh, each of them um, just to uh, start talking about the general uh, misbeliefs and perceptions this is strongly rooted in the society and this is what creates uh, masculine uh, patriarchal social structure where men is dominant women is subjective. and it's especially a problem when especially becomes problematic i would say when we try to explain and uh, to interpret uh, women's sexuality her consent and um, all stuff like this, all, st- all those sensitive things. And uh, especially this uh, should be contextualized and put in the context of uh, so, uh, of uh, college campus. And here comes the issue of fraternities and all male peer groups. Um, if uh, somebody from our audience does not know much about fraternity, as I did not know at all anything about that before starting this research, mm-hmm. uh, this is uh, yes, all male peer groups, uh, very homogeneous according to race, age, um, social class. Uh, um, and And they are, um, this is uh, actually um, institutionalized, formalized groups of socializing. And this itself, socializing is something uh, first years and second years are are looking very much. This is is the bridge to jump into college life and uh, being integrated. And um, these fraternity groups are diverse. Of course, what I will say about the fraternity groups does not refer to all of them, uh, but there are several. Big fraternity groups, we all know the names, and uh, they are famous for their bad reputation. And uh, one of them is uh, Silva Sigma Alpha Epsilon. I was betting myself not to uh, like to correctly <laughs> pronounce this name. Uh, yeah, which is, uh, in other words, uh, um, famous uh, as uh, um, se- sexual assault expected. And I was, and I will recall a very famous documentary um, uh, recorded filmed in 2000. And 15 hunting ground uh which uh, um shows um uh, it shows very well a uh, particular case of for example yale university uh, where um fraternity members are surrounding the dorm where um students are living especially of course first years and second years and they were shouting no means yes yes means Anna no, and it happens in yale university so fraternities um yeah uh, so um well um, this is uh, one of the examples there are some other examples and allegations uh, towards uh, fraternities and of course yes many uh, this fraternity uh, houses and groups are hosts of many parties across the campus so um, this is the place where most likely are happening um, uh, sexual assaults and rapes uh, because alcohol consumption is uh, higher there Um, also I wanted to point out about um, athletic teams, which very resembles this um, fraternities uh, with its nature, because it's also a male, masculine, all male uh, groups. But uh, what adds in favor of uh, um, athletes is that they are very popular and they are part of the big industry, which is. Uh, college sports and uh, which is very be- beneficial for the university itself and also they are treated th- for those reasons they are treated as um as um like um symbols of a university's image uh they are praised they are treated uh differently so many of the cases we we know and we recently um shared to each other about uh, the case about oklahoma university uh sportsman which is um assault which uh, which like according to the woman who um, filed the allegation, uh, raped um, the student there in uh, Oklahoma University. Also, um, uh, like uh, once again, uh, media brought up the issue of. Um, a Stanford University player uh, who um, who was just convicted for six months to uh, as a like to be in prison, but uh, in the end he ended up in only three months, and now his attorney is um, asking for to overturn his conviction, and like yes, many cases are connected to athletes. Um, last, but uh, my colleague will. Um, explore this issue further and not only is that alcohol mentioned many times it it uh, creates on the one hand the condition for the victim uh, that uh, she is not able uh, most likely is not able to resist the uh, sexual assault risk and threat and on the other hand the alcohol is a good tool used by sexual assault perpetrator to uh, cover his and to use as an excuse so this uh, alcohol adds on to the issue so much. It needs to be mm-hmm. further elaborated, in and case it's you, your interest as well.
0: Yeah, um, and um, what else? I know you ad- identified a few other factors you wanted to share.
4: <laughs> yes, yeah, <so> also <clears throat> based on that kind of culture things, we can also think about the alcohol things more specifically. I mean, there is some research just like um, when there's a combination of alcohol, use of alcohol drugs, and also when there is this kind of in- intimacy among the people, then the probability of the happening at the sexual facilities incre- goes increase. I mean, mm-hmm. increases very specifically. So we basically have to consider that, and based on that, I also we also searched out the circumstance factors like um, incomplete physical security, uh, short of reporting system. Um, basically, the United States campus is very large, and there are a lot of spaces, so, and also, I mean, in, in a campus, like, rooms, there are a lot of rooms, so, basically, the physically, there is some possibility of happening the sexual assaults, so, maybe it's, it has some very important meaning, combinated with the use of alcohol, and drugs, and intimacy, and as a culture in the campus, so and there's just some place to happen, to make some chance to happen that kind of accidents. So
0: it seems like all the pieces are right, in
4: place, right? right, right, there's some condition to happen that. Mm-hmm. So that's basically kind of what major cause I mean, in the other perspective, in South Korea, we try to eliminate that kind of chances. I mean, sometimes we hire or make the students to work as a volunteer i mean patrolling in this campus in the night so it it's like to in a effort to eliminate that kind of probability that like um yeah people can use alcohol basically not drug in my case in our home countries cases but intimacy actually there is some possibility of that kind of sexual assault but mm-hmm. also we have some kind of spaces to happen that but then the our uh, university students are patrolling in the campus by volunteer or as an employment actually it decreases that kind of possibility so mm-hmm. we can we could induce that like um physical insecurity in the united states as a one of the main cause so re- yeah so we're going to re- this
0: one solution that you're aware of from your own home country context right. in Korea right. is uh, is student organizations patrolling campus right. and helping uh, sort of sh- sort of serve as uh, like a watch out group. Right. Um, and so that's a that's an interesting um, a, a, a interesting solution. I'm sure we'll hear of some some more as well. Are there other pieces of this that that the Listeners should know in terms of uh, contributing causes,
4: right? The I think the most important thing is the different. I mean, the legal system and administrative system. So we also found out the cases of the Canada's. I mean, Canada has a very similar the system with the United States, even though it is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But Canada is a very good example to compare the with the United States case. In, in I think that basic difference between the United States and Canada is a legal system. I mean, they see the sexual assault accidents in the college campus as it just a social crime. But the United States sees that as a school affairs. Mm-hmm. So they deal with the, the kind of accidents that is a social crime and the, the criminal justice department or bureaus involved it and they just make main possible uh responsibility to deal with it but the united states case is a little bit different yeah i I understand that maybe title IX and approaching the kind of affairs and sexual assault as an education perspective yeah actually that has meaning but basically there are a bunch of differences between united states and canada in reality i mean the united states has more rate of that kind of sexual assault in campus it means that basically current system to deal with that kind of accident as an educa- only, I mean mainly educational perspective has some re- restrictions. So it means that we have to approach it basically change of the legal systems. Also the administrative system has a uh, connected effect on the sexual assault. I mean Title IX um, gives a more responsib- responsibility to the Title IX coordinators but basically they are also related with the interests of the uh, university campuses, I mean, campus the administration parts, or the other
0: stakeholders. Yeah, so this, this is one of my concerns as well. I mean, I mentioned this early on, but it seems to me that while we would hope universities would be altruistic, public service-minded organizations, um, we know that they engage in some questionable behavior when it comes to athletics. Um, and sort of reputation preserving um, behaviors given that major uh, universities compete over students and resources. And so it seems a little worrisome to me that universities are in control of this because no university, no major university is gonna want headlines about sexual assault cases uh, damaging their reputation. And so there seems to be some weird incentives there on behalf of the university, despite what we would hope would be pro-social behavior, um, to underreport and kind of try to sweep these things under the rug. Um, so I would agree that the administrative and legal sort of framework of this is uh, is is a big uh, a big problem. Um, so where do we go from here? What are some uh, solutions that the group found? with respect to trying to give better protection um, or to prevent sexual assault and also do a better job of taking care of victims?
5: So uh, we, we came up with, uh, we looked into a lot of the, uh, literature and you know, some of the older cases. And even before we jump into the solutions, I want to kind of go back and tie into what Gandhi started this whole conversation was about this strong social disconnect between behavior and principles. And what I mean by that is uh, I think at first we need to acknowledge that sexual assault that we see in our campuses is really a reflection of what has been happening and is happening in our societies right now. And this disconnect or this conflicting uh, message is sent strongly by the entertainment industry, American politics right now. where. Uh, you know high-profile perpetrators that we hear and see about in news every day, uh, and their acts of whether it was dominant aggression, however, like you know, 15 years back or very recent, they keep growing. But they are also being just shrugged under the rug, and the the, the high-profile people there are they keep uh, being supported, especially in terms of American politics. So I think it is important to recognize that uh, as long as we as a society to continue to support and you know not defend those people who are coming out, um, we will sort of like see this reflection in our campuses as well. Saying that, uh, we looked, in, looked into some of the innovative like justice approaches that have been kind of uh, done around the world and this was from an example or, or an article we read about UK where they focused on restorative justice initiatives and what that focused on was uh the, like some um, more like remedial and you know less any uh, alienating or traumatic uh, approaches for the victims, the offenders, and the families as well. So they focused on victim uh, offender conferencing, some like uh, non-court based uh, processes and that uh, even, and this was especially during the initial phase of investigation where it's very hard and usually it's the campus administrator or you know, Thailand officer that they're taking care of those cases. So um, so more focus on like family mediation and those kind of initiatives could be useful over here. Also, these would I mean could either be a part of the criminal justice system that we have right now, or you know they can exist together alongside. So I think that that's the biggest gap we have uh, when we talk about the justice system and the campus administrator who are taking care of these uh, cases. Um, Another and another part of the, these kind of approaches would be one of the issues we saw in terms of underreporting was the amount of distrust these victims and students had uh, to go and report these to their campus administrators because they did not feel that they would be heard and you know, their cases would be investigated or anyone would even believe them. So we think that these kind of approaches can help build that uh, that uh, trust and you know kind of. Uh, n- Bring those parties together, uh, to work together. Another uh, and uh, one, we did a case study on uh, five different universities in Texas, mm-hmm. and I think a discussion between UT Austin and Rice can kind of explain that. Um, so that's Yeah, I'm yeah, going. yeah.
1: So, um, kind of on the whole trust issue mm-hmm. that he brings up. Um, encouraging people to go to their Title IX offices. Um, One thing that has been met with some success across the country is um, programming from the Title IX offices. So, um, at Rice they call it Project Safe. Um, Mm -hmm. and It's essentially a seminar series that the Title IX office puts on to talk about a whole bunch of hot-button issues relating to sexual assault, so defining consent, like uh, making people aware of the resources that they have. Um, At UT, um, they actually have a really cool program that's like an integration of research and outreach, and it's called Masculine UT. Okay. Um, which I, I love the name. Yeah. And yeah. It, it focuses on kind of the problematic um, male stereotypes. So, the like aggression and basically how to create a healthy masculinity on campus. Mm-hmm. So, I think universities doing those types of things, obviously, they're good for the camera, they're good for the public image, but I also think they do create a little bit more trust. With the university to the student, so that the students see that the university is spending money and time and investing in
0: solving the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, actually taking even symbolic steps. I know, and uh, I've done some work in campus diversity, and uh, you know, one of the one of the things that I've noticed is that you, that sort of victims of discrimination, excuse me, if they can just see action that goes beyond words that people in the organization are willing to support. It goes a long way with giving power to those voices because not only is the institution saying that they care about these things, but they're hosting seminars, they're doing trainings, they're, um, they're having actions to help change the culture. Um, and I think that is a, is a big symbol to victims that it's safe to come forward. What else? What other types of solutions or issues should we be thinking about um, uh, with this issue?
5: Um, We talk a lot about like culture on campus, how that being, um, you know, the cause to like, uh, like uh, Miriam talked about alcohol abuse and hypermasculine all that case. So I think something that's really important uh, and we found during our research was uh, the lack of, continued and meaningful awareness about sexual assault, consent, bystander intervention, those kind of thing to high school students. So these are future college students, you know, who will be going to campuses. So we really, there is a gap when it comes to this, uh, these kind of conversations from families, from high schools uh, to be students. And so I think that uh, is a, that could be a solution. Also utilizing social media for this, which, you know, we are talking about future college students, millennials, so social media could be an important tool to kind of educate and inform those larger masses, and these can be uncomfortable conversations for parents and you know, families to have, but I think the gap that is right there, especially in American high schools, uh, to talk about these cases, um, so I think that is one solution.
0: Uh, yeah, the social media campaigns seem one that have had some real success. I mean, exactly, right now we're in the midst yeah. as and again, you said at the beginning of the kind of Me Too campaign that has brought kind of a whole wave of uh, sexual uh, assault and sexual harassment yeah. allegations to light. So it's, I think sometimes social media catches is sort of mocked as being, uh, well, well, just post about it and mm-hmm. that doesn't solve anything, but it does add to the culture of a voice to it as much more of our social lives are spent in these spaces.
5: Um, and another Sort of a recommendation that we, we discussed when we were um, doing the project was uh, incentivizing the victims and uh, bystanders. So what that mean? What I mean by that is most of the times doing these cases, victims they have to go through like uh, cases where they're you know talking about all the painful things that they're basically relieving the assault in their uh, their trials and they need to undergo medical and legal costs and some of the um, and in many cases they're not able to afford this so having that incentive uh, for them to a encourage uh, them to come and talk about it and b knowing that there is a group that supports them and they will listen to them i think that would be useful and similar for bystander you know uh, we talk a lot about um, training uh, about bystander intervention in colleges, and I think that kind of also goes with the continued awareness and education we just talked about. So that's uh, another recommendation to for having like insem- incentives for the victims and bystanders to come forward.
0: Hmm. So it seems like a lot of these are kind of cultural and awareness solutions. Did you think about any solutions from the administrative legal issue with Title IX and universities being the the arbiters of these cases. I mean, was that something y'all gave some thought to?
5: Yeah, so what we found that in many of these cases, the campus administrators and timeline officers who were working on those cases, they were most of the time very unprepared to go through these complex cases. And so that really gives, gives room to the Office of Civil Rights to come in and kind of work with these uh, administrators provide better guidance protocols and training in general from uh, professionals who are trained in that field so as an example of a policy improvement we were looking into Baylor University I think that was a really good example
1: yeah so um, so all there there are certain requirements from title 9 but basically all title 9 requires is that you have a title 9 officer mm-hmm. um, everything else is a series of recommendations and best practices um, which don't Mean too much to universities. Um, mm-hmm. Baylor, for example, um, in the wake of its sexual assault scandal with its football program, they brought in um, independent consultants that found 105 policy improvements or just like practical improvements for their Title IX office and their university administration that could have helped keep this from being a situation. I'll repeat that: 105. <laughs> yeah, that like this is just neutral. Like outside looking in, these people found 105 things wrong with their Title IX office. Mm-hmm. So there is very limited accountability for the for the university from the federal government. And I think that's something that definitely needs to be improved. Our standards need to be more rigorous. Um, Title IX applies to any university receiving federal funding, so that's public or private. So this is a pretty wide scope already, um, and in attaching some more of these best practices and recommendations as stipulations to federal funding I think it will probably produce most of the the infrastructure changes that you'd want to see you know well-trained Title IX officers um well-enforced guidance and um, grievance procedures um Mm -hmm. better cooperation with like university police and local law enforcement um I mean, you gotta, people respond to incentives, so you gotta attach it to the money they're receiving or, or people just aren't gonna listen, so.
0: Unfortunately, I think, um, you know, to your point there, it, there, there has to be a shift in incentives. It's, it seems relatively clear that the current incentives, um, the decision at the end of the day is that um, um, they're not willing to put enough resources towards this. I mean, these are some pretty prevalent remain pretty prevalent problems in um, society like we've talked about in class has, has been accepting this as outcomes. Um, and so we've got to find ways to get more funding to these efforts. And like we talked about in class over this past semester, one of the ways you do this is change the incentive structure, um, change the cost structure to the stakeholders. Um, and so I think those are some good examples of ways to do that.
1: I think that the, um, the good first step that's been made so far is some of these surveys because I feel like for a long time, people really didn't understand, like there was no quantifiable way to look at the burden that this Mm -hmm. is placing on colleges. And a lot of the the costs, the effects that we're talking about are implicit. So there are certain structural barriers, you know, people are going to be like, well, why is my cost of my education going up to fund this title nine office? I can hear all sorts of fiscal hawks screaming, can, yeah. like, you know, the university dollars, like, they keep going to staff, these people aren't teaching, like, what are they for, and and the reason is, is because the just institutional structure of a university imposes costs on some of its students, and those have to be justified in mm-hmm. some way or the other.
0: Alright, any final thoughts you'd like to jump in with?
4: Um, <clears throat> actually, the South Korea's case that I told before was, like, for uh, emphasizing the needs of bystanders, but sure, mm-hmm. but totally appropriately, so thank you. And also, I wanted to say the media things, but you said it, said it together, so thank you again. But... Um, well, already Solve, you already addressed it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right.
3: I think something really important to discuss, just in conclusion, is the main priority of these institutions is education is important, but safety should be the main priority of institutions when it comes to students. And right now we are failing our students when it comes to safety. Um, We're failing them in preventing sexual assault and we're failing them in our response to sexual assault. So while we have a lot of uh, recommendations that can be used that can help prevent and uh, respond to sexual assault on college campuses, uh, unless we put in meaningful actions with these recommendations, they're not gonna mean anything. Unless we can provide uh, training that actually addresses the issues not as a, a five-hour video series where students are clicking through just trying to get get it over with so they can register for classes and faculty aren't just letting it run while they're doing other work we, we have to do meaningful training we have to do meaningful implementation of these new policies these new recommendations um, because like I said safety is the number one priority not only of uh, college students, but of the nation. So, until we address the meaningfulness of this issue, then the problem won't be solved.
4: Right. Actually, I want to add up something. Like, um, at first time, I, I just approached this matter in a perspective of like stakeholder analysis, and I thought the the more responsibly should be in a school. So, I was a little bit sensitive to talk about these issues because I'm a student. So, mm-hmm. but as I think more, I think they are actually under the legal system and administrative system of our society in the United States. So basically, as I think it more, the legal system already make them to kind of approach that issue. I mean, it's the sexual assault in that, that way. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm saying that basically campus also have the responsibility, but I mean, the legal system or the social system is more important to think about it and we have to approach it more revolutionary. I mean the current system is actually have some problem anyway, even though it has some meanings. So I think we have to approach it in longer perspective, more fundamentally. And as a short term we have to think about the combination of roles between the quick title line coordinators and the crime criminal justice departments, like that. So we have to consider that kind of combination of the role and attitudes—I mean, I mean—approaches to deal with the problem. That's also important. And also, I think that to control the reporting system is also important. I mean, basically, people are maybe the low rate of the reporting is coming from the the fact that people are usually think feel that. The current reporting system is not effective so when we can deal with all the contributions and we can make more reasonable solutions then the reporting system can be go up so they can mix like a virtual cycle so i have some optimistic
0: yeah i, I think uh, i mean the, the good news is i think there are some You've, you've highlighted some strategies um, and some ways to think about the legal and regulatory framework, think about the culture, think about how universities uh, could improve their approach to Title IX. And so I think this is, I mean, there, there are reasons to be optimistic, right? I mean, in, in the past, um, women or, or uh, being predominantly women, but victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault didn't feel comfortable speaking out at all. And so it's just it's progress, um, just that people are feeling free or feeling safe, to um, express uh, um, their uh, their allegations. Um, so this is really useful. Um, I think that um, I, I I don't know that I would completely agree with uh, Gandhi that um, safety is always the number one concern. However. Um, people should certainly feel like they are free from having to be victims of sexual assault on college campuses. Um, And so this seems like something that we need to continue devoting more resources to. I'm glad to see that there's a uptick in data availability and research on this. Um, And in the meantime, I think people can continue to share their voices and voices of support on this uh, this issue because it does feel like here in December of 2017 that, uh, culturally it feels like a turning point. Um, don't want to be overly optimistic, but um, between the Time Magazine's Person of the Year, between the Me Too campaign, um, while some leading American political figures haven't uh, stepped down, some have. Um, uh, John Conyers, I think it was, has just recently stepped down. There's a renewed push for Al to step down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you do see some figures um, at least in one political party beginning to step down uh it's not all rosy right there are a number of allegations against the president and the president was continued to be supported there's a number of allegations against a current uh senate candidate in alabama roy moore of um, sexual impropriety or sexual misconduct with a minor um so it's not ubiquitous in the sense that there's pushback from this but at least those voices are uh, being heard on some level in lots of situations um, and throughout the entertainment industry. And my expectation is and um, that this will also ripple over into the academic community over time as it as it should. Um, so with that, uh, in respect of everyone's time, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up. Thanks again uh, for sharing your report with us. Thanks for sitting down and chatting with me. Um, I think this is an, an, an important issue that people need to know about. Um, so thanks for choosing it and thanks for doing some real quality work on bringing light to this. Thank you. Thanks. thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of season two of the public problems podcast. If you would like to help support this podcast, you can do so by sharing the episodes with your friends, family, students, and liking our page and following along as we do live events. You can also support the public problems podcast financially by subscribing to the podcast at justinbullock.org slash subscribe, or by clicking the shop now button on our Facebook page. Here you can pick any monthly subscription or single donation amount that you'd like to contribute. Any support is greatly appreciated. I very much believe in this podcast and its content and hope to make it more visible and have more time to spend on it in the future. Thank you very much.